This episode is powered by denanywhere.com, the online extension of Den Meditation. Our primary goal is to make meditation and personal growth available to all so that you truly understand and learn to love yourself, thus creating more harmony and success not only in your life, but within the world. We offer online programs, teacher trainings, retreats, free meditations, and many programs to further your growth. So go explore all the possibilities. Go to denanywhere.com now. Hey guys, have you checked out Den Anywhere yet? If you haven't, you must, because it's a way for you to get all these meditations on the go. We have workshops, we have retreats, but what I want to talk about today, if you haven't checked it out, this is a perfect reason. Starting December 1st, we are launching a 21-day challenge with our own Kelsey Patel, who we love so much. So for 21 days, starting December 1st, you will have an email sent into your inbox that will have a beautiful guided meditation, about 20 minutes with Dharma talk, and also some distance Reiki and some EFT, because she's amazing like that. This will be such a great way to help get you through the holidays. It's December 1st to the 21st, so it'll end right before those holidays and you're in the thick of it, and I promise you will be better off for it. So go to denanywhere.com, go to the challenges, sign up now. It's only $21.99, so you're talking basically a dollar a day for your sanity and for some growth. I think that's worth it. So go there and let's do it together. See you December 1st. Welcome to Den Talks Podcast. This is Tal, I'm your host, um, and I've got such a great guest. This is someone I've been following for a while, and I'm so excited to bring them here because I feel like it just covers so much material that we talk about all the time. His name is Jedediah Jenkins, and he's written the book To Shake the Sleeping Self. And you should follow his Instagram because what he did is he biked from Oregon to Patagonia. Biked, like regular bicycle from top to bottom. And by the way, the funny thing about this is he never really biked before. The actual description of him getting on the bike for the first time is hilarious because he fell a bunch of times. But he and a friend joined for a little bit that he didn't know really well. I mean, just the adventures are amazing and just the idea of being able to do this, but really that inward journey of him dismantling religion and sexual identity and kind of his relationship with his family, it is so beautifully written and very poetic but it's just all about identity. And look, we talk about this here a lot. Who are we? How can we figure out who we are so that then we can live the lives that we are meant to live? And you get a very specific part of his journey in this with a lot of insight onto ways that I think are gonna get you guys to think about it and relate to even more. I think you're gonna love the book and I think you're gonna love this interview because he's hilarious and great and really open. here with Jedediah Jenkins. It is, it does. You're right. If you're not saying Jed, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's, and I never lead with Jedediah because, no, I never leave with, I never lead with Jed because people hear Chad or Jet. So I say Jedediah and then they just give me this like deer in headlights. Uh Uh-oh. And then you say Jed. Yeah. And then what's interesting, if I say Jedediah, five minutes later in the conversation, their brain has rewritten it to be Jebediah. Cause, really? Because that's what they already knew. They had heard that. So they're, you know, we're in a conversation. We're at whatever cocktail party. And then they're like, oh, this is Jebediah. They'll introduce me. <laughs> Jeb. <laughs> Which I know a Jeb. Jeb's a cute name. Yeah, I'm down. You're like, but it's just not mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, great name. What if you met a Jeb? I. Oh. What if that was like your relationship? What Jeb if my, and Jed. What? Oh my God. What if I married a Jebediah? I, that would kind of be amazing. Mm-hmm. We said it here. Except... <laughs> Every, I would never know if they're talking to which one because our names 
You get nicknames. That's what just would happen. It always happens. You'd be like J1, J2. It'd be something. Or like, (laughs) depends on the last name. It'd be a whole thing. I like it though. (laughs) But I do know some Jebs, but that's funny. So Jed. And I grew up with a couple Jeds also. Whoa. I know, right? That's rare. Is it? I guess, I mean, for me, it's not because I would, but I guess you're right. I've never really met a Jed since. I grew up with two Jeds. No, that is rare. It's not a normal name. I love it. Thank you. I think it's a great name. But we are here to talk (laughs) about this amazing book, To Shake the Sleeping Self, which I love. I mean, I followed your journey while you were doing it. And so then to read the book has just been amazing. And he biked from Oregon down to Patagonia. Um, And just the adventures you had, but more just the unraveling of self through sexuality, religion, Mm. just, I mean, all of it. And I love it because there's a lot of what's the word, like duality, of course, but there's some contradictions of yourself in here in an amazing way, which is who we all are. Like we're yeah. all contradictions of ourself, unless you really want to go on the dive and you're going on the dive, so we get to be part of it. And that's kind of what I want to dive into because I think it's a fascinating, honest portrayal. I mean, you're so honest about what you're learning, what you're not learning, where you're frustrated in what you're learning or not learning, which I kind of love. You get really annoyed sometimes that you're not having these moments you want. Yeah. Which I think is also part of people who go on these like overt kind of journeys of discovery. Yeah. I that was something that I tried to figure out when I was writing this book. Am I writing the book I thought I would write or what is the, what is the intention of this book? Uh-huh. And I realized it wasn't it it wasn't to give people like a roadmap on how to be a human being because I don't I don't know. I don't know the answer. What I really longed for is somebody similar to me to like ask the right questions and make me feel less alone. It wasn't actually about answering the question. It was about like I just have lived so much of my life feeling like afraid of certain questions or afraid of like talking about things um in my family and in my faith and sexuality and just like the whole journey of the complexness of my identity um and it's the simple thing of like if you have hemorrhoids it's embarrassing <laughs> until your best friend says i have hemorrhoids and right. you go oh my god me too right and then the moment you say that yes you can both go look for some kind of cream but like it has totally <laughs> changed the way you felt i love that this is your metaphor <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean though no, it's like he's a beautiful writer i promise <laughs> But it's, it, I just felt like I wanted to commiserate with my younger self. And you do in a really great way. And I love that you just said it wasn't about necessarily creating the answers. Mm. But I thought that's what was so great because there's so many parts in here. Like, cause I mean, you can see it. I was like all over this thing, like <laughs> underlining and which is like one of my favorite things to do. Me and there too. was a plethora of it in here because there were amazing answers in here for people who are looking, even though you weren't intentionally putting them in there just by like your self discovery. But I also thought it was interesting because I mean, at least for me, when like I kind of stepped back and really like really looked at it again, I was like, oh, well, because a lot of this portion of your life and your journey, even though, you know, you set out on these journeys, people think I'm going to get these huge answers and I'm going to grow here. What it felt like for me, I'd be curious to know if, if, if it resonates or not, was it was more like you needed to dismantle a little bit. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like you couldn't really shoot up or you couldn't come up with all these answers because you kind of had to just like 
untie all the knots that were holding you back first. And it felt Mm. like that was more of the journey for you, which is why at the end you're like, I don't really think I had the answers. But to me, I'm like, no, but you did. You did the first, you did that first thing we all have to do. It's just, we all do it at different times, which is like, you started like unburdening yourself to be clear so that you could then start. I, I actually said, I'm like, I wonder if like now, if you did the bike trip, like what the things that would come up for you. Like it's almost as if you'd be getting those answers you were craving now because you've already gotten to the place in order to be able to receive them. Yes. Does that make sense? Oh, you said it so perfectly. It, it, it brought to mind, um, the work of father Richard Rohr. I don't know if you know his name. He's, he's a, he's written a a number of books and he's an incredible open-minded spiritual teacher who lives in the desert. He lives in Albuquerque. Um, and he's a Franciscan friar. Wow. And he wrote, let me think. Oh, he, the specific book I'm thinking of is called Falling Upward. And he talks about how there are three stages on the journey to enlightenment and, and being a human on this planet. It's order, disorder, and reorder. Ooh, and so I the just way, got the chills. Yeah, so the way he, the way he explains it is, these are the healthy stages on the way to enlightenment and you can't skip any. And so order is when you're a child and the world is chaos, mm-hmm. it actually helps to have order. You, you tell a child, don't eat that poison. Don't eat that rat poison. You don't have to explain to them the molecular structure of poison. <laughs> you just tell them, don't. Anything under the sink, don't drink it, you know? And so it's like, because the complexity of the world is too much for them. They're just trying to figure out how to walk and how to make a joke and fit in and all these things. And so it's like short circuit their system. Too much information is just going to, they're going to go numb to it. And so you create a structure, you create rules. I, you have a curfew. I don't need to hear your reason for being out a little, you have a curfew. You need to be home by 10, right? This is order. And it helps a child while they're figuring out the world feel safe. But there comes a time in your young adulthood or at some point in your life where you dismantle the order and you realize that the way that it was handed down to you from your parents or from your tradition or your religion isn't exactly true of the universe. And so you have to start taking it apart to find it for yourself. Some people never do this. Right. And depending on how... I would say like a good chunk of people never do this. Never do this. And Mm -hmm. and, um, Father Richard says that generally there's like a there's a correlation between people who stay in order and being politically conservative and people who stay in disorder and they are they become hyper liberal interesting because they and and so in disorder sometimes especially if the order really hurt you you want to rip it to shreds and you want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and you want to turn turn over tables and that was what I, I mean, my, I did, I was really big in the order because I was raised evangelical Christian, which was great and fine. It really did make the world feel like it made sense to some degree. I had a lot of questions, but. <laughs> we all do. Yeah. But it was, I mean, it's nice to grow up thinking that a God above loves you, made you, and wants what's good for you. And, and, and anything that has hap- is happening to you. God has allowed to teach you something. You know, like, that's a great feeling. Agreed. And so the dismantling, especially for a lot of gay Christians, is to just throw it all out and be like, Christianity, religion is trash. It has got to go. It is regressive. It is 
antiquated and it is dangerous. And so a lot of people stay and get stuck there. And then what Father Richard says is then enlightenment comes in the reorder phase where he's, he describes it as transcend and include. You, you go through it, you're on the other side of it, and you bring it along with you because you needed it to get there. Like you need order for a reason. But that's really beautiful because you said something at the end of your book that I wish I had the quote exactly, but to the effect of, you know, something about faith, which I liked. Um, I liked very much where you were saying faith is the certainty, you know, you, you, you have faith in something with all certainty no matter what, which I was like, that's amazing, but it's also a total mind fuck when you think about it because yeah. then you never know when to question or not to question. But we'll talk about that in a second because I was like, that's a mind fuck. And then right after you were saying... You know, I guess, you know, you have to give up your past in order to grow up. And I'm just not ready to erase my past yet. Something to that effect. I'm sure yeah. I'm butchering it and I'm sorry. <laughs> but I, it stuck with me because I remember I noted there too being like, but do you have to erase it? Like, can't you accept it? And still, like now that you're putting it in these words, can't we accept that order, but yeah. then change it to reorder to what works yes. for you? Totally. But I remember, I know I butchered it, so feel free to well, like, I mean, <laughs> be like... <laughs> it's hard. It, it's funny because a book, especially a memoir about a season of your life, is really a time stamp. And if you're e amazing. And if you're ever changing, then, like, who I could have written a lot of... I probably did wrote, write a lot of things in that book that I no longer stand by. Of course. Right? Oh, and I have so, those questions. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I would say I definitely include everything before now I really do and I thank it and even like even something as simple as I have a strange relationship with regret I don't know if I experience it very much but I am so philosophically grateful for everything that's come before that like educated me to be where I am now and so a simple example is I had my first kiss at age 28 and like the first time I slept with someone was 30 and these experiences were great, fantastic. But you know, sometimes I'd be like, damn, once I tried it, I was like, this is great. I could have been doing this when I was 16, <laughs> you know, like, dang, I lost like a decade. And then I say, I had a great, my youth was fantastic. And how special that when those times came to me, I wasn't a hormone-infused child confused and pretending to be something. I was fully me, an adult, self-confident, liked myself, and then I was getting to experience this thing. And it was both circumstances were like of my choosing, very positive with amazing people. And so I'm like, wow, I guess I wouldn't have it any other way. It's beautiful not to have any regret. Yeah. To be able to like see things clearly for, you know, the path that got you to where you are. Also, because you said in there that you went through that phase where you're like, okay, I'm a gay Christian. My friends have not rejected me. Like you came out to your friends. You're like, so I'm going to be, it was like, it was like your trade off with God, right? Like I'm going to be celibate yeah. so that, because he, he let my friends stay. Totally. Which I, which I loved. I was like, it's such insight to, because you know, I have a lot of religious friends too, and I'll never fully understand what it's like right. to be in a religion where you're something that's not quite accepted, but yet you still have so much love for it. 
And I found that to be such great insight where it was almost like, okay, thanks. I appreciate that one. So I'll do this one for you. Yes. There's a lot of that. Like Like, there's a lot of assumed quid pro quo with God. Like in general or for you? For me. I mean, I, I think in general, at least in like the evangelical where the evangelical persuasion, which is you feel like you got away with something or God gave you this, so hang on a little longer. Or like you just kind of, I mean, I think we all kind of barter with the universe. Yeah. And you're, well, it's hard because you don't know what else it is. So if that's all you think it is, if that's the structure, then you're almost kind of happy that the structure was a little bit wobblier than you thought it was, right? Because yeah. in some ways, if that's the structure and it allowed you to come out and still be loved, it just grew a little bit for you versus contract. Yeah, yeah, that's well said. Right? So it's kind of hard for you to then reject something that's actually, in in your mind's eye, almost opening their arms a little bit at that moment. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's all, like, it's all, look, those things like this are always such a mindfuck, which goes back to what you were saying in here, which it was, you know, just your definition of faith. And I was like, Oh, God, but that's true. It's like whenever you have faith in anything, whether it be religion or, you know, universe or relationship, it's that, what's that line of when you question? And it's like, and you're constantly questioning, which is good. And I think you kind of got there towards the end of your book. Like Mm. that to you is like your new through line is just to be able to question. But Mm. it's fascinating. It's like, so with faith, when do you, when are you allowed to question? When are you not allowed to question? Like, where, where do you stand on that? Yeah, I would say there, it, it begins, I actually, I'm not so sure about other religions. I have good friends who are Jewish, but would say they believe almost nothing. They just, in, they just <laughs> like believe in the practice and the community. Um, but in, Christianity has a certain specialness to it in the sense where it demands assent of belief. That is, that is the actual transaction to do. And that's all you got to do. You don't have to do anything else. In the, in, my, in the way it was taught to me, you don't have to be baptized. You don't have to do anything. If you decide that you believe Jesus um, will save you from your sins, boom, it's done. So it's only mental ascent to that place. And then yeah. there's a zillion Bible verses, or I mean specific Bible verses that say faith without works is dead, meaning if you believe but you're not like following these other things, then you must not really believe. So that's kind of a catch-22. But technically, I remember when I was so deep in, in my Christianity, people would talk to me and they're like, and, and I would say, like, I think if... Adolf Hitler asked for Jesus in his heart like one second before he blew his head off, then he's in heaven. And they were like, I can't accept that. And I'm like, well, that's just how it is. That's like what our religion teaches. I don't know what to tell you. And so, so all that to say, certain amounts of questioning, it goes down to at what point are you questioning even... At one point, does the questioning dismantle that transactional idea and then destroy it? Like, for me, it really did destroy the evangelical, born-again belief system to me. Because, the que- I mean, the questioning did. That was the very thing that led... And, and why they insulate you from questioning, it's just the act of questioning, period. Because it's like, it shows disbelief. It shows, I mean, and, and one of the big things that would happen around me was they would talk about 
they would talk about secular music and television as being quote deceived. And so, and, and it has the power to deceive you. And so don't, don't read Harry Potter books because there's witchcraft and evil is real and it'll make you think it's okay. And it's a slippery slope. You're on your way to just. It's amazing. And so the, it's just really, it's a form of mind control, which a lot of hyper traditional faiths use. So how far can you question? I, you know, for me, like it, it expand, my question is, my questioning expanded my faith into a place of, I don't hold things with closed fingers. I hold them in the palm of my hand and just let them be what they are. And if they change based on experience and evidence, okay. Right. It's like, how do I feel what is experience and what is evidential? And then just like let those things dance and they, they could change tomorrow, you know? And I, that was not... How you felt before, prior. No, no, no. I mean, it's... I always... I always had in the core of the back of the who I am this like, I don't know. I wonder what all this is. Like... It might be nothing. Because I also... <laughs> Which is a terrifying thought for like most the, kids. Yeah, like the dangerous thing that my parents accidentally allowed was the Discovery Channel in my house. And so I grew up going to church three times a week, but then also watching like Carl Sagan and like scientists and astronomers and whoever. That's talk. hilarious. And they so <laughs> I'm sitting there and they, like they just think I'm watching Animal Planet or something. And so they're like, oh, good. It's like not educational. Well, and, and for Christian parents, it's like, don't let your kids watch R-rated movies or like sex things. So, oh, the Discovery Channel, of course. Like, what are they going to do? Like film ancient Egypt? Great. And I'm in there and they're talking about the, six, the evolution of man from, you know, single cell organisms. Right. And like, <laughs> and the, I remember I watched this one program as a kid about, the sexual behaviors of humans, but it was it was this British show, and they talked about humans as if we were animals, which we are. But right. but the whole gimmick of it's the like show, the documentary of right, the whole gimmick of the show is like talking about humans as if we're apes, and they're like the male is attracted to the glute like gluteus maximus, whatever, <laughs> and you're like, and it's really eye opening and perspective taking to see that. And I was I remember being a kid, being like, oh my gosh. We're just monkeys, you know? And then, I mean, so that kind of planted a seed right, so early on. Right, you're already, on. like, subconsciously questioning things. Yeah, and then what's... I really think I became such a diehard Christian, which I would be curious to talk to so many people about... when So many adults who have really strong faith, if you could really get them to honestly analyze it. Mine was not evidence-based. It was when I realized... I was gay and I was going to be rejected by everyone I knew. And the the key, the, the root of that rejection was in the Bible and in the faith that everyone oh, I knew followed. Pit in my stomach. I was like, I have to master the Bible. I have to be the best, best. one because this is the thing that can hurt me. And so I need to befriend it. And it's funny, like I've always had that personality, like the scariest, meanest teacher. I, instead of being scared of her, I was like, I'm going to make her my best friend. Well, I mean, you did get on a 
bike and go from Oregon to Patagonia without really knowing how to bike at all. Right. I mean, so you tend to just like do yeah. shit that might scare others. <laughs> yeah. Because I, mean, I, I want to like, when something scares me, it will bother me until it no longer scares me. And so but good I for just, you for being like taking action on it versus it could be the opposite effect. Like you could be very inactive and inert by it. And that's true. Like, and so. it just makes, yeah, like I do not have a depressive personality. It's very, but interesting enough for me, something that I thought was interesting and it makes sense if you're saying basically the whole journey for you is learning how to question. So then in some ways the idea of questioning is going to terrify you in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I felt, which I kind of loved watching this journey. It was just, I could feel so beautifully in your writing the reluctance of kind of this of this inward journey, not the actual journey. Mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. inward there was a reluctance and an avoidance happening, which mm. I found fascinating. So, for instance, like where you really kind of went face to face with it was in the Mexican desert, which sounded like brutal in so oh many God. ways. Right? It's, it is so awesome if you're in like a truck with a camper. Right. I mean, it's awesome. <laughs> And you got beers in the back. regular bike. No. The desert is not a friendly place when you don't have provisions. Yeah. I mean, and it sounded... And it was also your first time off, like, out of the country that you're familiar with, too. So, I mean, there's so much going on. But, I mean, what I loved about it was the mental journey you went on in this part. It was the most, it seems like, in the entire trip that you were actually confronted with this, like, the thoughts of just, it almost, have you done a deprivation tank before? Yes. It reminded me of that. I think there's a reason why, like, the desert mystics and a lot of the like great poets of the and religious leaders of the past went to the desert for like 50 years. Like I, it, it remind, I literally was like, this is like being in a deprivation <laughs> tank for like a week, which was insane. You go there for one hour and you're like, you cover like 30 years of material. Yes. I mean, but it was amazing. Like the heart of dark, like you were just kept going in and in and questioning. And what I kind of, and I loved it. And then I, I felt, and again, always correct me when I'm wrong, especially because it's about you. Um, like you came out of it, the desert, like literally and figuratively, and you were like, oh, great. Like now we have to do this and we're going to start planning. There's no more time for this deep dive. And you had Weston, which I can't wait to dive in. You had a, a guy with you, yeah. a friend. And you kind of weren't really truly alone, alone until the end of your exactly. trip. And I just started to notice, I'm like, oh, he's actually avoiding. It's funny, I, he's saying he wants these revelations, but you're actually avoiding. That is so true. That's what it felt like to you me. You nailed it. That is so, so, so true. I, I was so wounded by too much introspection. It like hurt too much. I get it. And I was like, no, no, I'm just going to drink wine and have fun and explore and like meet up with people and like. I, I need to like the momentum of the trip will keep me from thinking too much. Which is funny because that's really what you wanted though. Yeah, I know. But then sometimes you get what you want and it's harder than you thought. Well, because it was dismantling your whole childhood and your yeah. whole identity. There was, you know, there's a paragraph you say very early in the book, like one of the first few pages, but it kind of, which I loved. And you said, I didn't know that this trip would free me from shackles I couldn't see. I didn't know it would pry my fingers from the parts of myself that had to go. I was holding on tight to the narratives of my youth like treasure, but with hands full, I couldn't receive anything new. And I couldn't see that I was clutching both treasure and poison. And like, I love that because I was like, that is such a beautiful way for us all to remember that when we have any beliefs, any, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter whether we think they're bad or good, there's a bad side and a good side. Mm. And it's like, and I just thought it was such a beautiful, and it's funny because I get it. I think for the first time you were seeing the poison of these beliefs and it was like not feeling so great. 
Totally. And it's, it took me a long time to like admit they were poison because you're really sold the package of like, this is going to save your soul. And this is so important. Like you're not allowed to call the Bible poison. No, no, no. That's the word of God. You're not allowed to like question these things. And if, if, if you don't understand it, it must mean either that you have too much pride or you're misunderstanding it or we need to dive deeper or whatever it is. So also, you had a really good childhood. Fantastic. So it's not like, hey, the proof's in the pudding. It's like, if anything, for you, I would think that would make it even more confusing. It made it more confusing. Yeah. Totally. And the, my church community was amazing. And I really looked around in the Christian community, like in my high school, they were the nicest. They were the most kind. They were spending their Saturdays, like making food for the poor. And like, I'm like, oh, this is, these are the better people. And they're onto something, right? You know, and so and the better people, though. That's interesting. It's like that's the problem. We go into this duality, and it totally. just fucks us up. I know, and and so I think because I think I talk about this in the book, but the idea being because they say the Bible is the word of God, and if 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 it's so successful, this life, and these people are like really good people, and this tradition is 3,000 years old, I'm like, okay, well, I feel like being gay is not bad, but I'm just me, and I've only been on Earth a couple decades. So this 3,000-year-old tradition is saying it's bad. Maybe they're right. Like, who am I? I just got here. And that was what really, like, and, and you're always taught that humility. Right, and it's interesting because humility is not always a bad thing. But no, it's like, no, it's, it's a great right. thing. But then there's sometimes when there is a lot of treasure and there is some poison, it re- it requires somebody to be like, I know we've always done it this way, but I don't think it works. Like right. this part is bad. And, and we're and evolving. We ne- yeah. Well, it's interesting because even though it's slightly different, it felt like someone that helped you was Weston. So I, I mean, I'm kind of obsessed with the two of you and I'm, and I'm obsessed with like how you portray him in this cause it changes, which I love. <laughs> but so you, and again, it makes so much sense when you're done with all this to be like, Oh, of course you had someone with you in the beginning. Like you were not ready cause you didn't yet know who you, you weren't yet know who you were yet. Like, so it makes sense that like you had to have someone help you uncover stuff and then I don't know it was like so symbolic that at the end in like Patagonia it was like you like you finally were figuring Mm. it out but so Weston he came along with you he was with you for a good chunk of the trip if not most of it 10 months of the 16 that's a lot oh yeah (laughs) that's a lot with anyone but you and you guys were so different but it was funny because I felt like you, you put, and you guys had some amazing conversations, like the conversations, and you've had a few of them at least that you put in the book about addiction, I loved. Mm-hmm. Because it brings up this whole topic of, again, duality. Like, so we, he brought up some really good points of like, oh, we as a society decide what addictions are okay and which ones aren't. <laughs> yeah. But they're all addictions. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, that's so true. And I like how he called you on your shit. He's like, you keep giving me shit about smoking too much pop, but like you're on your phone the whole time. Yeah. I'm like same addiction. I was like, oh my God, that's true. Like, (laughs) kind of like you said, these are the better people. They're serving food to the homeless. It's like, well, who's to say someone just because they're not doing drugs is like, doesn't have equal problem of like escapism just in a different way. So he was very free in kind of how he looked at, 
how things move. It's just kind of where it felt like you started to go yeah. to. And you were way more controlling is not the right word because you're not you weren't controlling of him, but like controlling of you and the situations. Right. And the, you're you are such a good reader, by the way. You're, oh, you're really? really nailing it. And it's like <laughs> I loved it. I I'm really just loved like it. really moved by an in-depth reading of my book. That is really profound. Um, w- Philip, his real name is Philip. I okay. call him Weston in the book. Yeah, you changed most names, right? I changed probably some 50%. Some people I knew, and I was like, wait, that's not her. Okay. Yes, <laughs> I changed like 50% because just some of them, like if they did something that could be whatever, uncouth, is that a word? Um, sure. sure. That is a word. Yeah. Then I was just like, I don't know. I, I just like... And this is a long, long other story, but like in the past, I, when I worked at Invisible Children, we made, it was a charity where we made documentaries about child soldiers and and we made this documentary, Coney 2012, um, which we intended for 500,000 people to watch over the course of a year. That was amazing, by the way. And thank you. But we intended it, we thought, I mean, with all, we'd been doing this for a decade and we were like, okay, we're just going to put this on YouTube and maybe we can get 500,000 people to watch this thing. And we have, we've put our heart and soul into it. And then it got a hundred million views in seven days and it was so misunderstood. And so everyone like ripped apart every little part and some people really got it. But that, that number of people doing anything, you're going to have a huge millions of people who don't get it or just like assume the worst about it. And so I have a little bit of like, I don't, PTSD, I'm a little triggered (laughs) by the idea of, when I put something creative in the world, it no, could it explode. And so just that little bit of fear, I was like, that's interesting. That's I was true. like, I don't like, I don't want if I don't, whatever happens, like maybe if I just change his name to Weston, that's a small little layer of like protection for him for whatever reason. But you didn't even know him that well before you guys embarked no. on this. No, I knew him like, We'd, we'd probably hung out three, four times. And you guys have to realize, like, they're just on bicycles all day. Like, you're usually, like, camping with hammocks. Like, you're, or you're sharing beds. I mean, you yeah. share beds a lot. Oh, like, yeah. you're, you're in each other's shit. Oh, I mean, yeah. literally and figuratively. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, but, um, so to get back to what you are saying, Philip was an interesting, uh, my fear of asking too many questions and, and being like unmoored to like a foundational truth of the universe. Like there is a God. Okay. And to be good, you serve him like that. I can rearrange all the words outside of that, but like, let me anchor myself to like one thing, like God is love or something. And the foil to that and my it was Philip who will question anything. Every, yeah. And so, and he seemed in my mind chaotic. He's like, nothing is meaningful. No, nothing means anything. America is an evil empire and the prison system is modern slavery. And I'm going to manifest money to smoke weed 24 hours a day. And <laughs> I was just like, I was like, it, once I got super familiar with him in some ways, I was like, okay, I don't, that's too far. So right. I'm like, I'm glad that I'm seeing this. And he is such a phenomenal person. And I really recommend anyone on the planet follow him on Instagram because it is such a joy. He's like homesteading 
in the mountains of North Carolina. And he's always barefoot. And he's like making leather products. <laughs> By the way, he growing. was barefoot a lot in the book too. He's You're always like, barefoot. Across like the Tijuana border yeah, barefoot. He, he's like <laughs> very, um, it's called grounding or something. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. He's very, very, I mean, he is all these things and wonderfully so. But um, I don't know. He, he taught me such an extraordinary amount, uh, specifically uh, to, the, to your point, because he pushed me. Yeah. And, call, and once you know someone is for that long, like over the course of the months, like the politeness wears away and he's just like, that's bullshit. You know? Yeah, no, some of these conversations were intense in a great yeah. way. You, one of the things I loved is like in the beginning, you kind of made fun of him for being mystical. And you said it to him, you're like, you made fun yeah. of him. For, so then my question to you is because even at that point in your travels, you still believed there was God in everything. Yeah. So then to me, I was like, so where is the line of like spiritual and religious? Like, where does it get drawn? Well, it gets the, in the evangelical tradition, words are charged. So like you're taught to, if someone says, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, you're taught that that, is just, that person believes nothing and they just make up their own religion and they're selfish. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so if you call God the universe, then, uh-oh, you are spiritual and you're woo-woo and you're not a real believer. Like the, the, the Christian algorithm is always scanning everyone's language to see if they belong to your group or not. That's like what you're doing all the time. And so I just had been trained um, to, to find certain language to be, to, to in, indicate that a person had no real strong tethered belief. And so he would talk about things and the word, the term mystical or the term spiritual to me was like just bad. I know because you when you guys were on shrooms, which, oh my God, you guys should get this book just for that story alone. <laughs> it's hilarious because you're not a drinker. I mean, no, you're a drinker, but you really don't do drugs right. and you have a funny story about the pot, like <laughs> the pot, not listen to me, but like where you're just vomiting. Oh you're like, God. I can't do it. Uh, no. But he convinced you of like mushrooms being from nature. <laughs> and by the way, like your whole trip, like reminded me of the last times I ever did shrooms where I'm like, oh my God, it's like the cheeks hurting. It's you so can't true. stop laughing. I mean... And you had a great experience. Great. The Do, best. Have you done since? Or you're oh, like, yes. That's it's your I've, thing. I've just like, Weston, Philip, really Philip Weston. taught me like, they're just, I mean, it's been, all, I've only had positive experiences. But it was funny, in that trip, you said you looked at him and you kind of looked at him almost with, not pity, but this moment of being like, oh, I wish he would realize this is all for good and there's goodness in everything. <laughs> and I remember giggling because I'm like, I think he knows that. I feel like yeah. you're the one who's actually trying to learn that. <laughs> you know, and it was this like moment of, again, the contradiction uh, yes. of like, you feel like you're having this revelation. And I'm like, oh, you're like, it's almost like you, you almost refuse to see his freedom sometimes because it was like you couldn't quite get there yet. Well, I think one of the collateral damage of a very like stream of consciousness, honest memoir is that like, if you have eyes to see, you can, my ego is laid bare where like I can be on, what's great about I can book. be on both sides and pretend like that's not hip hypocritical. Right. You know, I can like criticize you for something and do the exact same thing and wash myself. But by the way, clean. that's like, that's why that I is think, real. But that's why I think this is so great. <laughs> and which is why I'm talking about it because I feel like 
it is a real honest portrayal of like a human journey of mm. you see it so clearly and I love it. And it like, I'm telling you, there were moments I just giggled because I knew where you were at. And I was like, we've all been there. Like mm. we've all been there and, or are there right now or about to get there. Mm. So um, it made me giggle, but I, you know, you guys, your final kind of conversation before you parted ways um, was intense. I mean, it's like you had a bunch of intense ones about right. whether it be money, addictions, this, mm -hmm. but this was like a final religious one where he mm -hmm. kind of really was took me to the mat, took yeah. you to the mat. And, and it was almost like a breakup in some ways. And you were angry. You could tell you were like really mm -hmm. angry when you left and, you know, and I, but I love some of the things he said where he basically said, you know, the way he put it, which I loved, which I didn't think, I know you're in it cause you were religious, but what I loved is how he said, if God is really who you say he is, why would he be playing so small? A yeah. version of that, right? I mean... It's so good. It's and it was so good. I was like, that is such a genius way to talk to someone about religion, which is I'm not denouncing God. Right, I'm not right, saying God right. doesn't exist. I'm saying, isn't he But more? the rules of the game you're playing they're is small, a bad game. And they're it's, small. Yeah. He, if he's as powerful as you say, <laughs> why is he playing this little piddly game that you've yeah. created? And I was like, holy shit, that is mind-blowing. <laughs> And, and, and just to take it full circle, he left and you, you went to Machu Picchu, which he was supposed to meet you for and he mm -hmm. didn't show up. And like, you had friends though, a group, it sounded like a blast by the way. Oh my God. Yes. I mean, you had like four or five friends, right? Just it was, I think it ended up being seven or seven of us. I mean, the, just the adventure alone. I know we're talking about heady shit here, guys, but like the adventure alone in this is so fun. It's just all the different spots you hit and the oh, party Latin you Latin America did. is magic. Yeah, the people you met and your friends would pop in and out to do like yeah. great adventures with you guys. And I mean, there was so much fun, but like I definitely was intrigued with like what was happening. So you have all these friends, you're doing this incredible hike through Machu Picchu. And which is, I mean, anyone who knows anything about it, it's a very spiritual <laughs> hike for anybody. And I'm telling you, if you were listening to this podcast right now and you've never been, but you've wanted to, everybody hates like overhyped things. There is no amount of hype that could make you understand how cool it is. There, It doesn't look, photos are amazing, but like when you're there, it is so much grander. It, you can't go there any other way than going there. But that's amazing. So do you feel like, and we'll like divert for a second and then we'll go back to being too heady and making people's brains explode. Um, do you <laughs> feel dream. like social, <laughs> do you feel like social media, I'll ask it broader. What effect do you feel like social media has had on travel? I think, I think like everything, there is a yin and a yang and a good and a bad. There, a, a friend, my friend Samantha and I did a road trip around the Alps. <laughs> The slow rise of the microphone. Yeah. Uh, my friend Samantha and I did a road trip around the Alps last year, and a lot of it was inspired by, you know, we follow travel accounts, and a lot of people were posting photos of the Dolomites, like the most know, beautiful mountains I've ever seen. And I'd never been to the Alps. Um, and I'd never, I'd been to Europe, like London and Paris, but most of Europe I'd never seen. And... I was like, wow, all these travel photos, like, I want to go see that. And it was more, it's interesting. So that's a perfect, like, encapsulation. Some of the things, like, we saw photos of, we would, like, hunt down and find where that is. Like, where is this lake? Where is this thing? And some of it was more stunning than the photo could ever grab. Some of it was, like, 
what looked like a beautiful natural place was like swarming with Times Square yeah, people and like buses coming in and getting off and taking the photo and leaving. And I was like, there is no way the photo I saw of this could have been, they had to Photoshop these people out of here. There's no way that they ever saw this. Right. And so, you know, and I mean, and that's like, that's like a funny, it, it, it's like, yeah, I want everyone to see everything. It's not like I deserve to be there and all these crowds of families don't. But it does, there there are, of course, ways in which at least visualized social media, like Instagram, um, can make something look different than it really looks. I know, it's so interesting because I, I waffle because I'm like, look, same thing. It's open people. It's made the world so much smaller. So it's allowed people to travel more, want them to travel more, understand it, be less fearful of it, yeah. which I think is great. But then on the flip side, I, I mean, like I grew up traveling and I've always loved to travel. And, you know, you've, you have a whole portion of Costa Rica in your book. Like I, in 96, was like spent the summer in Costa Rica. Like so before there was yeah. any tourism wow. there. And people keep being like, why won't you go to Costa Rica? I'm like, I, I can't bring myself to go to Costa Rica now. And, and you see. actually talked about how you guys left the West Coast to go to the East in Costa Rica, which we did too. We spent a weekend in the East Coast in 96. So imagine oh then there was God. no tourism. It was one Rastafarian shack like on the beach that we just spent every day at. And we just told them when we were leaving. So if we were there for a week, at the end of the week, and we go home every night, they'd be like, okay, so here's your bill. Like... They would just tally up whatever they thought we ate and what beers we drank on the beach, what spaghetti oh we ate. Oh, my like, God. It was amazing. And also just like the little town I lived, I, and I can't bring myself to go back to see, see how it's changed. Which, by the way, it's so good for the country because they've now right. made a lot of money. So there's always like good and bad. But there's something about part of the reason we ended up on that place was just talking to the locals. Where should we go? We only right. have one week. We're working these times. Where should we go? It's like the discovery. And that's the only part for me. I'm like, is part of the discovery missing mm. now? Because now people go on trips and they also document, I mean, everything. everything. So it's like they don't eat something without you knowing. So it's like you're not even, they don't eat, they don't move a foot. You, so they're videoing. So it's like, you know, there used to be something about like you'd land and immediately you'd get a different smell, sound, and feeling, you know, mm. and you still get some of that. You can't not get it, but like you can't do smell over, but mm. you are already kind of programmed to think of what it's going to be versus kind of like, what can- Let it be what it is. Yeah, or the mystery of what's what it's gonna be. Or imagine like if you were just in the Alps or someone here was like, you have to go to these mountains, they're amazing. Or people like go and you went and had no clue what they were gonna look like. I don't know, I have such mixed feelings it's, towards I, it. I mean, same. I think it, it, it also, there are different types of people in the world. I know people who, in the 90s, I mean, I had, a, I remember going on a trip with one of my uncles long before, when the internet, you couldn't even, like, Google search something. Right. And we we went on a trip, and every minute had an itinerary. This restaurant, this place, this, I read a book about this, I read a thing about that, and it's like, dude, we're in Hawaii, like, let's chill. Like, what if we just find something? And, like, he, So the there was whole, always a version of The this. whole trip was booked before anyone had seen Hawaii because because the 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 loss and risk aversion that that person has is like I would rather read you know uh Nat Geo Traveler and figure out what they say so that I know I won't be disappointed whereas if you go open ended you might eat a bad meal 
Right. You know, you might get some random recommendation. You're like, this is disgusting. Or not what I, not what works for me. I mean, people, I always, I feel like I'm always online and someone's like, going to Paris, what are the wrecks? And my response always is, wander, you can't go wrong. It's that always so my response true. because I'm like, it's Paris. There's not a, I mean, most of Europe is like that. There's yeah. not a bad corner. No, I mean, it's, it's like, so gorgeous. Yeah. And it's like, and then you're going to find something for you. But I think I, that's also like, we, I feel based on your perfect interpretation of my book that we have <laughs> similar spirits. And I think I'm okay wandering. And right. you, you know what? If I don't get a five-star meal, I'll eat a street taco well, and I'll still that. be full. You know, like where someone is like, I don't want to eat dirty street food, you know? And know. that's like so alien to me that like... You know, what, I was going to say, when I was in India my <clears throat> first time and everyone's like, oh my God, the street... I got so sick from... The hotel food <laughs> that was delivered to my room because everyone like made me so scared because I was by right. myself. And yet not the few days I said, fuck it, that street food mm-hmm. smells so good. I have to have it. And I was like, I don't care. I'll have diarrhea. I don't care. Yeah, it's worth it. Didn't get sick from that, <laughs> but got amazing. sick from like the five-star hotel food. <laughs> and I love to tell people that story because mm-hmm. I'm like, sometimes you also just don't know. And it's like, you, you just... can get sick anywhere. <laughs> well, and I, I see it as just like, mm, I'm probably not going to die. So let's build up my immune system. Right. Be- because if it's really tasty, then I want to keep eating it. So let me build up some antibodies. Right. That's I a got good way to look super at it. sick in the desert in Baja. From whatever water, whatever it was. Oh, right. Food. But by the time I was in Mexico City, I was housing street food. Oh, my God. Blue corn, white cheese, little tons of things. <laughs> I just dream about it. And I never thought twice. You it's know? funny because you guys a lot, both of you, you and Philip, mm-hmm. um, talk a lot. It seems like you both talk about Mexico. It's like Mexico ended up being almost part of your favorite part of the trip. Absolutely. Now, do you think it's because it legitimately was, or do you think there's something about it was kind of the beginning of a huge adventure? That's a great question, and I think it's both. I think think it's proximity to the U.S. and the juxtaposition of the way Mexico is often portrayed or was portrayed in every movie and TV show versus what it is. You know, some of the towns you were describing, I was, like, circling, going, I'm going to go there, I'm going to go there. No, it is, that like, so... The under-deliver and uh, under-promise and over-deliver, like, was times 10 for Mexico. That should be their tagline. It's just, like, I was so blown away, and and I was like, this place is so great. I don't think people are trying to sneak into America. I would never leave this place. What are you talking (laughs) about? And and Mexico is also just so huge. Like, my favorite countries tended to be the big ones. It's Colombia, Mexico, Argentina. They're, they're just the diversity of land and shape and history, just the big countries. I don't know what it is. Just had, I just loved them. It's true. It's so true. I, mean, I was in Argentina and it's crazy. I remember being with like Cacti Desert, <laughs> Crazy City, Patagonia, which was like, even in the summer, it was all snow and coal, as you know. I mean, you ended Gorgeous. up there with we'll I mean, the most stunning place <laughs> no, I've ever I been know. in my entire life. <laughs> and I just remember, I was like, everywhere we went was as if I went to a different country. No, I know. I love Argentina. Oh my, I would, I sometimes want to commit some horrible white collar crime so that I have to flee <laughs> the country, you know, because I don't want to live far away from, I love living here. I love the U.S., um, but I almost sometimes wish I had to because I would move to, I'm sure the FBI is listening. I, I <laughs> you heard would move here. to Argentina because I'm like, it's user-friendly. It's gorgeous. So user-friendly. I mean, I hope, 
they do have like political, economic, serious issues. But so I hope they don't devolve into a Venezuela situation. But they won't. I know. Um, I really want Venezuela to figure it out because that country I seems go like there. it's so stunning. I've been dying to go there forever. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt, but I want to let you know about our next Den Talks, which isn't until January. Can you believe it? But it's going to be great. We have Gal Sassan, who you know we've had on this podcast twice. He's amazing. And the reason I want to tell you about this early is because it will sell out. He never does anything here that doesn't sell out. He's incredible. Wherever he teaches, he sells out. So we're going to do it January 25th, which is a Saturday night, 7 p.m. Practical Astrology with Gal. Come. I think the most beneficial and amazing part will be the Q&A. So we'll leave some time to do a longer one because I know you guys all have questions for him. We will talk a little bit about the history of astrology, but more about what are practical uses and how can you use it, and especially in 2020. What are things we need to look out for and what are trends? And you know him. Everything with him is layered and incredible, so I'm sure he'll bring in religious reasons and reasons about names and what's going on in the forecast. I mean, he always has a million things that makes your head explode, and holy shit, it reminds you how intricate this entire world is woven together, and that's what I love about him. So prepare to have your mind blown. Come, ask come with questions and just it's going to be an awesome night so hope to see you there go to den talks podcast go to the nav bar go to the lives and book your space now this is super exciting we heard you guys everyone always asks us especially from the podcast so how can i do the den even though i'm not there i don't live close enough i don't have the time so now we have denanywhere.com and you guys that is basically like having the den whenever you need it, wherever you want. And we have free meditations, so there's no excuses, all different times so that you can put it into your practice and they are free. And we have certifications, workshops, challenges that I'll announce that we can all do together. Basically, it's anything you could want from us but can't walk through the doors. And the beauty is you can sign up for free and please do as we're constantly putting new product up there and adding things that you're gonna love and I don't want you to miss anything. So go to denanywhere.com, sign up and enjoy. Okay, let's talk about your mom. Mm. So see, a beautiful one. I mean, both your parents, very religious, mm. divorced. Um, seems like they had different perspectives on religion, though, even though they were very religious. Like, yeah. right? Your dad seemed to have a bigger picture of it, and your mom seemed to hold on a little bit to the one note of it. Yeah. Maybe, I don't, I mean. I think, I think that's fair. I think my assessment is my dad has, is a bit of a bad boy, a little bit of a rebel. And so a strong religious structure. Like he was down for Jesus save me from my sins. Cause he's like, I'm, I'm kind of wild. Like who knows how many drugs I've done? Like, yes, Jesus. Like at the end, I hope you're there because I I'm, fucked up. <laughs> I'm like wild. And my mom is just, I like, I don't even know. She's just kind of like perfect. She's beautiful. She doesn't lie. She doesn't cheat. She doesn't steal. She's just like, and it's like, she's just good. Some people are just really good. And, and I think the like Achilles heel to that might be that it's a little harder for her to empathize with people who do. That's a great way to say it because she yeah. doesn't understand it. Yeah. She's like, just don't do that. Right. Because I can just sell myself <laughs> yeah. to do something. Why yeah. can't you? So now she's... I don't. I hate using the word struggle because it doesn't come off this way. So you should describe it. What I was going to say is she s struggled with your sexuality, mm. but clearly loves you. There was never a moment that it felt like there wasn't any mm -hmm. love or embracing you, but kind of a refusal to believe that you still didn't yeah. have a choice about it. Yeah, that's exactly 
true. I, it's fun. The book, this book's been out a year now, and to see the amount of like gay people, LGBTQ people who like just the relationship with their mother was either exactly the way theirs is or what they wish theirs was like. Because a lot of people, their parents just flat out rejected them. Right. There was like, that was their, their trauma of thinking that was love. To be like, this is such a dangerous lifestyle that if I embrace you and love you in spite of it, then you'll f- keep doing it. My mother, it's, I keep talking about how the, like, the multifactored reality of being a human is like, there's never one cause. There's this John Muir quote that I love, which is if you, if you try to pull up anything, if you try to pull up any one thing by its roots, you'll find it hitched to everything else in the universe. <laughs> Isn't that great? It's amazing. And so... Which is why, going back to what we started, some people just don't like to ask questions. Yeah, they don't. Because it, it can just... <laughs> and my mom is very religious, loves the Lord Jesus, the one and only. But she's also so full of love and and knows that she doesn't know everything. And so she's like, I am very convinced about Jesus, but there's all these other things going on. And I am not going to be this like holier than thou righteous person and like reject you. I'm going to love you for forever. Even if, even if you hate me, I'm going to love you is like her. She's just like that. She got the good part of Jesus. She really did. And she does like, she gets it. And, you know, I, I think I talk about this in the book, but I really do. Um, I identify with why she thinks the way she thinks. There, there comes a point where if you raise a little gay feminine son in the American South in the 80s, and the only thing you hear on the news is hundreds of thousands, millions of gay men are dying of AIDS, and then you go to church and your pastor is saying, the Bible says the wages of sin is death and these homosexuals and gay offenders, God is, I mean, the New York Times called it a gay cancer. They were like, what is happening? I know. And, and so that, to, if I was my mom and she, I would be so worried about my son, I'd be like, oh my gosh, like, and you're in a lot of the Christian community that they call it like a gay spirit. It's like a spirit is upon you. It's like the devil trying to like fuck with your life. And so like, how scary and then your husband is like philandering and then your marriage falls apart and then your youngest son has like developmental disabilities and you're a single woman and your oldest daughter is like wildly rebellious. This, I mean, she's told me this subsequent. She's like, I didn't drag you to church because I was forcing God down your throat. She's like, I was a single mom. I had no, I had no money. I had nowhere to take you. And the only safe place I could like take daycare. you is church. She's like, I just knew you'd be okay. And I remember I asked my mom, because um, now I'm 36, I have quite a few friends who have kids, and the kids go to sleep at 8 o'clock, and then I get drunk with their mom. And we're cackling, laughing, and having a great night. And I'm like, oh, my God, it never dawned on me that my mom, after us kids went to, be- went to bed, might have, like, been having fun with her friends. It, I, I never <laughs> crossed my mind. Right, that she had a life. Yes, and so I asked her recently. I was like, Mom, what, what did you do at night? Like when we would go to bed. And she'd be like, well, everything was so you know busy with taking you kids and stuff, so I'd, I'd just maybe 
get some errands done, like some paperwork done, or usually maybe I'd draw a bath and read the Bible. Just like, that's it. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, what a life. Like, how hard. I mean, try, I, I have a friend who's a single mom who makes good money, has help, and it is so hard. It's hard. And she has one kid. My mom had three. Three. Did you still to this day never had like a blowout fight with her about your sexuality? We have had blowouts on email because we love each other so much. It's it's easier. It, to do it, it would be it, we just wouldn't be able to do it because I wouldn't. If she got too upset, it would upset me too much, and then I would <laughs> shut down. I'd be like, I'd rather never talk about this than see that look on her face. I kind of loved the symbolism. You obviously didn't do it intentionally. So your mom, you guys were in. Um, Patagonia and the Chilean side, right? Yeah. And um, at the very end, yeah. Right at the very end. So your mom and two friends of yours came to meet you for the. You were done. You biked all the way, mm-hmm. which I mean, I got really teary-eyed a few times towards the end because it's like the whole. I mean, that's a huge journey. It was sixteen months on a bike. Going, I mean, it's crazy. So your mom came to meet you at the end and two friends, and she said, "Like we have to, you know, do this hike, which is a very difficult." It is very difficult for me, and I'm like in my thirties. Right, and you'd also been kind of hiking yeah, for sixteen yeah, months yeah. and doing stuff and biking, and like you should. And you guys went together. It was you, her, the two friends, and your two friends kind of went ahead because your mom was obviously in her almost 70s, 67, right? 67, yeah. right, struggling. And your mom finally was like, no, go ahead, you do it. So you did a good chunk of this hike by yourself. Yeah. And I personally found it super symbolic where I was mm. like, he may not have realized it, but he, this was him stepping away from his mom as, like an, as finally as an adult. Because I found the relationship with your mom fascinating. Like what you said, there was so much love. Clearly, though, she was part of the confusion, I'm sure, for you, indirectly, not on yeah, purpose, but yeah. of who you were and what you were allowed to be. And you had all this freedom on the trip to actually kind of start dismantling it. And it just felt like this moment of you, you know, being okay leaving her behind, which I don't think you would have done 16 months prior. And it was like walking on this hike. And you weren't with your friends either because they were so far ahead. Right. And I was like, I love that you finished this trip by yourself. Yeah. And you did yeah. it because I felt you were bringing distractions, whether you knew it all the totally time. Totally I was. And it was like, he finished this by himself, which is awesome. He didn't mm. intend to, but he did. And I thought it was symbolic that your mom was kind of behind you and your friends were in front of you. And I was like, this is huge. Like, he realized you can still have this beautiful relationship with your mom, but you have to be you. Yeah. You know? And it was like, there was, and it was so sweet when you guys were at the end, I was crying when your mom was basically being like, I love you, Jade, or however, whatever her accent is. You always like do it really well in there. (laughs) But, um. That was good. Oh, thanks. (laughs) But I thought it it must be because I was born in Tennessee. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I just thought it was really beautiful because I do think, and I could imagine if someone is of the LGBTQ community, how this would be really a great read because again you weren't also trying to force your mom to believe something different either yeah you were kind of letting her believe I think that's what's so beautiful about you too you're letting her believe what she needs to believe again I don't know what's changed but at least from the book and you're letting her believe what she believes because you know that she still loves you yeah I think the biggest kind of revelation in that is I remember realizing that I would be okay if my family rejected me. Like I had built enough of a life and I feel like that's like the true journey into adulthood. Wow. Where you're like, I am okay. No matter, 
if everyone rejects me, I can be truly who I am because I like myself. I just got the chills. And that was... I just got the And chills. that's when you can allow someone to be... Because... If I raged against her and needed her to change, then what the reason that that could elicit anger in me is because tethered to her is my okayness. Right. So I would be I would be basically trying to force her to change so that I could be okay. But if I'm okay and I know she loves me, then what then, else? Okay, like let like let's do this. But I think that's so beautiful. Oh my god, I got chills for so many reasons because there's like another through line through this book of caring what people think, mm. you know, like you say, it's like you told people you're going on the trip in the first place to make sure you did it because you yeah. didn't want people, you, you didn't want to disappoint Caring people. what people think is so, Right, yes. you went home for the holidays almost, I think a little bit and you, you know, that you didn't quit because of oh, what yeah. people think. It even came back up again with like how you ended things with Philip. You were like, the perception, people are on this journey with us now. Yes. And there was this moment, which I loved towards the end. I forget where you guys were, but you guys were sitting by the pool and you were talking about how, you know, he was handsome and had a great body and he was yeah. getting a lot of attention and how you just like realized it made you just want to get on your bike again because it made you feel unique and special. Yes. And I was like, oh God, did you not feel that about yourself? Which clearly mm. you didn't before. But the reason I just got the chills is because you're basically now saying you do. Yeah. Which yeah. is kind of awesome. I know. I know that these journeys really work, actually. Even <laughs> even though it might not work on your timeline, you'll look back and be like, it was working in you. It was doing something, you know? So, yeah, it's pretty profound. It is profound. Do you, you know, you talked a lot about time and, like, slowing down time and, like, finding kind of freedom in that. Do you yeah. feel like... Can you do that in your regular day now that you're back? Like, is there ability to do that or? You know, I, I like, the thing about slowing down your life is, so I, after this book, and I, I, I gave like a little TEDx talk about this concept of slowing down time because it really interested me. And in my research, I found that one of the key indicators of why time moves slowly when you're young and faster when you get older is because time slows down in seasons of identity formation. Hmm. So they say for people, time is really slow when you're like developing a brain and then it's really slow in high school because you're like figuring out, oh, I like punk rock. I am a punk rock person. <laughs> like, oh my God, like, I just had sex. Like, I'm never going to forget this. Like, and then your brain is like really memorializing these seasons because it's like, this is the building blocks of who you are. So like, don't forget this. And similarly, like they say, I don't know if you've ever been in a car accident, but I like flipped a car once. And Oof. what they say is very true, which is you are in slow-mo as it's happening. And I remember it in slow-mo, even though it's not slow-mo. Right. What it is is my brain is grabbing onto that memory because it was scary and it slows it down so that I can really look at it to see like, okay, what does this mean? Like either don't let this happen again or this is very important. And so, you know, we all have these people when you're like a full-blown adult, you, ha you have these friends that you went to high school with and they only talk about high school 20 years later. And you're like, oh, or they only talk about their kids or they only... And you realize, and that's fine, but when you read this research, you realize that 
people really harp on the identity formation moments, the things that, how you self-identify, like the amalgus blob of whatever you think you are, the, the labels and like connection points, you hold on to those things and think about them all the time. And for me, I have, I've been continuously like transforming about every few years, whether it was undergrad, I was like super, super Christian in law school. I was becoming like an activist. And then I w went into activism and was back and forth in Africa. And that was like so profound. And then I'm like, I'm going to become a writer. And then I'm uh, now I'm a traveler writer. And then, oh, oh my gosh, like people are carrying on Instagram. So that's another thing that's happening. And then I'm <laughs> moving back to Los Angeles. And now I'm like actually a real writer. And oh my gosh, now I'm a writer that has a book that's out. And now I'm on a book tour. And oh, now I've had my first boyfriend and whoa. And, and so like these, it's funny, like to me, when I see someone driving around with like their car is tricked out with the logos of a college they went to, I'm like, college? I don't even remember. College is so long <laughs> ago. What are we talking about college for? But that was a huge part of their identity. It is, yeah. you know, where I've been like Madonnaing myself my whole life, where I keep like <laughs> I turning hope you the page. She looks like she's 33. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway, I think in that way, like continually growing and excavating the like endlessly layered onion of who I am is what's made my life feel incredibly long. I love that. So it's like the more we can actually, instead of just putting one foot in front of the other and take time to go inwards, then it can kind of slow it down. Yeah. Or if you, if you really lean into the idea that you are not finished, like you are not a thing that stopped changing when you turned 25, like, I strongly believe that. Yeah. I mean, people ask me all the time. They're like, so this is what you do now? I'm like, I'm sure I'll do like four more. Like, I've never felt like whatever career choice, same thing. Like when I left entertainment, people are like, are you dying? Do you miss it? And I'm like, I don't miss it because I never felt like I can't go back. It's just right. like, it's oh a constant. Gosh, the same. Right. It's a constant evolution of like, there's so much to do and I keep changing and like, I keep learning new things about myself. So I'm sure there's... I mean, I was the weirdo in like an interview after college for a job where they're like, you know, what's your five year or 10 year plan? And I was like, well, I don't know. I, I honestly don't think that job will exist because I'm going to guess I'm going to do what I can and keep moving. And, and I'll probably look back and all those jobs will make a lot of sense for where I went, but it might not even exist. Right. And the woman was like, what? <laughs> like, but it's true. I was it's like, so true. I don't know where I'm going to be in 10 years. Like, no. I don't know where I'm going to grow or how I'm going to like. And the woman was probably like, I don't understand yeah. the language you're speaking. <laughs> I mean, this was like 20 plus years ago. But, um, but anyway, it's so true. Something else you kind of, you know, you talked about in the beginning a lot is like feeling trapped and wanting to get out of being trapped. But then like there's notions, which I kind of dug because it's so true. We're all like, it's escapism. We all go to escape things, but then you fall into the routine of that. Yeah, you know, and, and that becomes another trap. And it becomes another trap. It might look differently. So have you figured, is like being trapped a mindset or have you figured like a way out of like? Well, the, yes, trapped is similar to the time thing. Always related to your sense of self. Yep. So, you know, the, the whole idea of wherever you go, there you are. Like, oh, I fucking hate LA. Everyone's <laughs> so fake. I'm moving to 
whatever, Portland. And then Portland fucking sucks. Let's go to Austin. Austin blows. And it's like, you know, the only common denominator in all your moves is you. Like you. <laughs> you are the problem. And I think that... It's the same thing with relationships. Yes. It's like if you love who you are and you love who you're becoming and you really are grateful for who you were, you feel much less trapped. And like you, like, like you naturally believe, if you feel that life is lived in seasons and you're not stuck as one thing, like you're like, oh, this is a season. You know, I might not love this job, but I'm sure it's giving me a tool for an unseen opportunity that's coming down the road. Beautifully said. You know, like that'll be dope. And I'll look back and be like, thank God I had that horrible manager at that job. Like that taught me how to deal with this situation. Now that I'm a manager, I don't ever want to do that. Yep. Blah, blah, blah. And everyone loves me and I get all the awards. So. Well, it goes back to God's playing bigger. Yes. Yes. God is playing bigger. And like the treasure that's not the poison is this idea that like everything is for you, you know? And like that was something. I, I was raised with the Bible verse that all things work for the good of those that believe, that, that follow God. And it's still a little tribal, but the idea being all things, like it was used as like, oh, you lost your job. Oh, your brother passed away. Like God is using this. God is doing something, you know? Trust. And trust. Those parts of the faith. And I feel like, I mean, at least spending as much time in Los Angeles as I do, like Los Angeles is a, is a very faith-based city. Now it's, it is very, I agree. Yes. It is energy. It is the stars. It is crystals. It is, but it is the exact same language. If you just change some words around, I'm like, I'm back in thousand percent. Like I felt like how Philip Weston spoke about it a lot. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly how I at least kind of look at stuff. And yeah. the same thing. It's like, there is a God or a universe or however, whatever word you want to use. Um, and there's a lot of faith that goes into it. Oh yeah. And it's, and it's really helpful. Like if you're, you're if your relationship is falling apart and you're like, geez, I hope the universe is doing something here. Like, I hope it's just not, my life is horrible, you know? Absolutely. Right. And by the way, and even if people are like, that's bullshit, just the mindset of not thinking your life is horrible just gives you energy to make something better. Yeah. It's hard to, it's hard to create from a crappy place. It just is. Yeah. And also like, and you alluded to it in talking about how I'm, I can be conflicted in this book because I can be conflicted within an hour. Me too. Like <laughs> I, I can be like, if you hold me, if you hold a gun to my head, I would say that like, there's probably not a sentient man brained God at all. Like, not even an organizing consciousness, right? But in five minutes, I'll be like praying. Right, but, you know? are, but you could, are you praying to something that's not necessarily... I, I'm praying to an energy, I'm praying to whatever is, and yet I, I will at one moment believe there is nothing to pray to, and another I will. And, and at the same time, I know that a tree can't hear me but if I see a cute tree, I'm going to be like, babe, you are so cute. Someone, some would disagree with you. Yeah, I bet you they can hear me, you know, and energetically, well, the trees talk. It's like, I, I, the whole like wave of consciousness around like plant consciousness happening right now is it's, really cool. It's amazing. Did you feel any of that like subconsciously while you were on the trip? Certainly when I tried mushrooms. <laughs> um, but I mean, I've... 
maybe it was being raised on the Discovery Channel. Maybe it is my um, nature, but I I very easily feel that like this planet is a superorganism. Like that just I'm like yes, everything is alive. I just read this really interesting book um, called Conscious by Annika Harris, and it's just the whole. It's a little book, and it's all about like what the hell is consciousness? Like it's very confusing. If if you are like a scientist, atheist like you're just looking for evidence, figuring out what consciousness is, like the best scientists are like, mm, no idea. We right. don't know why. Why would, why would a collection of unconscious atoms, when organized in such a way, wake up and realize it's alive? Like, right. why would it do that? Right. In what world would that... M- I have to read this book. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And, and one of the theories is called panpsychism, which is there's like a growing number of legitimate scientists who are positing the idea that the actual, actually the whole universe, it might, consciousness might not be a bug, but a feature of the universe. Hmm. Like it is, everything is conscious down to one atom, but it's just varying degrees and like, which is just an interesting. I kind of love that, but I do feel, but then it also goes back to we're all one and we're all created from the same place. So then it kind of then goes all the way back to where you started. Pull it up and it's hitched. So to bring it full circle, because you're talking very mystically, yeah. I love, like, so you're on, you're in Machu Picchu, you've now broken up with Weston slash mm-hmm. Philip, like, and you're kind of angry about it, mm-hmm. he was supposed to be there, and like, you're kind of hurt by some of those words, and you guys are walking, and you and your friends, kind of, one of your friends really starts talking about yeah. religion, and how she's been questioning it and everything. And you guys all end up on the top of this mountain proclaiming that you're mystics. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I just was like, this yeah. is a beautiful full circle for him. It's true. Like he planted these seeds. And and it also is an interesting message on how the messenger matters. Like my mom would always say, like my mom would tell me something and then my friend would tell me. And... I would then do it because my friend told me. So true. The messenger and, does matter. And my mom would be like, I have been saying that for 10 years. And you and I'm like, no, you haven't. Like, I would probably tell her, like, I have some announcement. And she's like, I have been telling you that for 10 years. <laughs> but I just, like, ignore it because I've decided that I can't hear her, you know? And I think they say in relationships that the ultimate sign of death is contempt. And so I had developed a level of contempt for Weston and that it's so, what I love is the vindication of how much of what he says, even like five years later, like some of the things he said then, which were like radical, silly are now like commonly accepted, you know? And I don't, yeah, it it was really profound. But so like of my friends who were, you know, I hadn't been living with them in a hammock for 10 months. So like I could hear what they had to say with less frustration and they're processing these things. And I just heard it for the first time and it felt like a safe place to sit. And when you really look at human needs, it's like a sense of belonging is so primary. And one of my biggest fears with actually detangling myself with evangelical Christianity was the loss of my entire community. Yeah. And so to have my closest friends with me, we're untangling it together, like looking at each other like, Made it okay. okay, maybe if I do this a little bit, you'll come with me. Okay, cool. Let's go a little further. And then 
we went through the doorway together. I lo- that's so beautiful. I get that. I mean, we yeah. do all want. I mean, because that's what I found interesting too. You kept talking. You kept talking about yourself as social Jed. But in the book, like if you don't know you, you're not the social one. <laughs> Do you know what I well, mean? Well, yeah. But, I mean, it's interesting because everyone around me experiences me without hearing, without being in my head. And so right. like a memoir is you in your head a lot. Right. You know, I'm not Aaron Sorkin. It's not all dialogue. No, but it was also interesting that I'm sure at home you probably were social Jed. Like that might have been True. the Jed you were putting on. But like when you're on a trip and can kind of don't have to do that shit. Totally. Which is the Jed we're learning about because we're on the trip with you. You're actually not that so like you weren't actually the social one. Like when no. you were like when you left the, that world. Yeah. No, I believed you when you said you were social jet. I didn't feel like you had, but I was like, oh, it's interesting. When he did this trip by himself, he actually, that wasn't you. Like, it was more him. It was more Weston, like kind of bringing you in. And if you had the choice, you would have liked to have like. Totally. Gotten the places without having to deal with people or talk right. to people. It would, yeah, I would be so tired. And that that's, might also be a feature of, I think, I think personality traits are, are often, adaptive in terms of making a person feel safe in the world. And so I developed a super social personality to like, oh God, people are going to pick on me. I'm different. I better be so funny. I better be so fun. I love that part when you talk about it. People, you guys have to read this because I know we've all been there. When you talk about like the formula that you have found, it's like, well, I realize if I just do this, it's fine. Oh, after a year, I realized I didn't have to be that much of this. I could up this a little (laughs) bit, push that. It was like literally you were... I mean, it showed how detached you were from actually owning you, mm. but it was like you saw this like formula, like you knew what you could do that you were comfortable with to like be accepted. Totally. It was really actually a fascinating way to look at it. <laughs> I was like, oh, there's like a formula. It was like a little bit more. We're of this, all doing a that. Less. We're yeah. all doing it. Yeah. With and some and unconsciously you're just doing it. That's like what being that's what being a human, human is. Human is. That's why this book is so good. I mean, it's so beautifully written. And there's, again, so much that we're all going to go, oh, shit. Like, I didn't realize I do that. Or I do that, too. Or, man, I can take a minute and sit with that for a little bit. It, oh, thank you. It, I remember when I was writing it, I was like, this is so specific to me that, like, unless you're a gay Christian Southern boy. I'm it, none of those things. You're not going <laughs> to. You're not. You're going to be like, no. I loved it. And that's what's so cool to hear you say that is that, I mean, it. I just think that John Muir quote is my favorite thing in the world because if it's all hitched. So like if you say one true thing, it is going to be true for everyone in some way. Look, I'm also a big believer that the whole journey is learning to know who you are and owning that. And then from there, what you can grow and do is magical. Mm. So we're all on that journey. And so whether it comes in the package of being, you know, gay or whatever it is, we're all figuring out identity and owning it. And I mean, especially it's like what we do here at the den. So it's like, to me, this is so relatable to everyone and anyone. Wow. But I I do have one more question before we do your four yous. Okay. Was there like a soundtrack to the trip? Like in your mind, is there a song you hear or something you hear now that like you can't hear it without it absolutely bringing you back? Absolutely, yes. During the trip, gosh, I have, okay. I know that Taylor Swift's 1989 came out (laughs) when I was in, when I was alone and in the like furthest reaches of Patagonia when I had two friends, Parker and Ronnie, join me. And they're like, you know, like, big strong men that love Taylor Swift and we would just like dance around like a fire oh, in the desert I love to this that. album and that was when um 
serial came out. And so we were, and it was, Interesting. it was episode by episode, week by week. And so we would just be like trying to solve the crime. It was so good. You know, like from the rural, you know, and I mean, it's interesting, like there's just a lot of things that, cause like the human mind is and memory are also so spatial. So during this, during the second half of my trip was when Black Lives Matter was formed and like Ferguson was happening right. and the Ebola crisis was happening. And like, there's just a lot of things that like rock me back to a specific location, like where, like I'm hearing the term white privilege for the first time. I can like picture the, how, how bad I felt. And I, I, where I, were you? I might talk, I was in Argentina, Northern Argentina. And I remember being, I remember being so w fragile about it. And, and that it's because I was so averse to being in trouble on accident. So like, all the time in church, like I would befriend a guy and then I would like, we would become really close. And then at church we would like, I would be like leaning on his shoulder and then I'd have to be called in and be like, you're not like, that's giving off like a homosexual impression. And I would be in trouble. And all I was doing was being friends with someone or like, right. And so I was so afraid of, Oh my God, I'm in trouble again. Uh, oh my God, I'm in trouble. And the, the concept of white privilege was like, Oh my God, I'm in trouble. What did I do? Like, our whole society is prop, propping me up and I'm trying to make it myself and all of a sudden I need to feel bad. It, so it was just a very interesting rewiring of my brain to really like grow up and learn like how complex and brutal so much of life can be. And it's just funny, like those moments, I just like know where I was. I love that though. I mean, that's kind of what's amazing about travel sometimes. Yeah. It's like the book you read or the song you hear. It's just like, whoosh, it, I mean, it makes you really present. You're like, oh. that's where well, it was. Well, I mean, if you've, I guarantee you, you can probably tell me the exact location of every person you ever broke up with, where if you had a phone call or a call, you yeah. can tell me exactly where, where you, you were. were. That's so true. Yeah. I can. Yeah, same. Heartbreaks will bring you back. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. Okay, let's do your four years. So four quick questions with quick answers for our audience. What's the most, this one might be hard for you. What's the most inspirational teacher, book, or author for you? Oh my God. Yeah, I feel like that might be hard for you because you seem very well read. Uh, well, <laughs> I, uh, I will say that there's a man that lives in Memphis named Tom Shadiak. And he um, wrote a book called Life's Operating Manual. He has a documentary called I Am. Mm -hmm. he, he is like, so. he is the father of so much of my thinking. And like, he really changed my life as much as anyone ever. And he's just a fantastic person. And, I love him. And he's, yeah, and he's not old. He's like maybe barely 60, late 50s. And so he's been in my life for a, a decade or so and is just, a fantastic human. If you had an extra hundred bucks in your pocket, what would you do with it? I would put gas in my car. Gas is so expensive. So expensive. I know. It's crazy. I, oh my God. I like, <laughs> it makes me, it reminds me of when I was like broke and in college and I would put like $5 at a time in my right. car <laughs> because I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, maybe it'll go down, maybe it'll go down. But all right, so gas money. Yeah. Morning person or night owl? You know, I'm definitely a morning person. My favorite thing is the morning. But I love a wild night. 
but but I just have them few and far between. Yeah, like, it makes the mornings harder. <laughs> yeah, but like my routine, like I'm so excited to go to bed because the morning is coming. So what's your morning routine? Wake up, walk downstairs, um, turn on the daily podcast from the New York Times or the journal from the Wall Street Journal. They have very similar podcasts and they don't always talk about the same thing. So you can like pick which one is more interesting. And then I make my pour over coffee and I'm the only one up and I open all the doors and the screens to make like the cold air come in. And then I'll either like sit and read like a long form article from the New Yorker or the Atlantic. And, and then I'll get ready and I'll go to a coffee shop to start writing. I love that. <laughs> I can picture it so vividly. <laughs> Do you have a surprising hobby? Um, <laughs> a surprising hobby. I'm such a public person and the, term, the way that I show myself, I don't know if people are surprised anymore by anything I do. Right. <laughs> That's true. I think... I, I don't know if it's a hobby, but like I can play the piano and I think I, I, think I would be like a pretty good singer-songwriter. Like I can, I can you hold it. You would for sure tune. be a great singer songwriter. You know, like songwriter. I can speak for that. I can't <laughs> speak for your singing. Like I can, I can sing, sort of on key, and and so like especially if I was in a studio. So like I think one day it's like a bucket list thing. I want to make one album. You should. I mean, at least songwriting. I mean, everything in here is so poetic. Like you're a very poetic writer, and for your mm. personal practice, you're going to read. Yeah. Home, right. So you're a very poetic writer. So that makes sense. Thank you. No, it's true. This has been a joy. Oh, my god! Don't leave. He's going to do his personal practice. But, I mean, you guys have to get it to shake the sleeping self because I think we're all sleeping a little bit and we can all use a little shaking. Um, and it's a beautiful read on top of it all. So thank you. And thank you for just sharing and being so open. Oh, thank you. I've had a blast. I could go another four hours. So could I, but we won't do that to everyone. <laughs> but you're awesome. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Jed is going to do his personal practice, which is reading us a poem, The Two-Headed Calf by Laura Gilpin. Tomorrow, when the farm boys find this freak of nature, they will wrap his body in newspaper and carry him to the museum. But tonight, he is alive and in the north field with his mother. It is a perfect summer evening, the moon rising over the orchard, the wind in the grass, and as he stares into the sky, there are twice as many stars as usual. I love y'all. Ten Talks podcast would not exist without these incredible people, Nicole Rappi, Reem Edon, Hayden Fungheiser, Kim Bielik, and music by Alex Fetter. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And also wherever you listen, please go and leave us a review. It's so greatly appreciated. It really does help us out. If you want to keep talking about all this stuff, please join our community on our secret Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search Den Talks Podcast, and join us there.